Hi there, global citizens. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around doing something in the world, um, or rather manifesting a new world. I sometimes get a little, um, I don't want to say forgetful, but I just like that doing something. I know a lot of my listeners have heard me say it before and that I want to manifest a new world, and that's part of it too. But we're here and we're manifesting. I am in Denver, Colorado, my childhood home. So I think you might be able to hear some of the nature sounds outside. I've just come off of a wonderful birthday with family. And also we're coming off of a, an, a wonderful global time with the 2020, which is 2021 Olympics. And that inspired me to reach out to my current guest, who is an old college teammate. And I was just very happy. I was like, oh, wow, this is like inspiring. I know people who've done this before. (laughs) And so my next guest, she is a five-time Olympian in the sport of track and field. She represented the Bahamas and she competed in the long jump and was ranked as high as fifth in the world. In her 17-year career as a professional track and field athlete, she is a two-time NCAA champion and was a five-time All-American while at our alma mater, Stanford University. She also competed in a record nine consecutive outdoor world championships. Yay! (laughs) She is currently project and special events coordinator at the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences at California State University, Northridge, and recently added to her portfolio by creating a full service home staging business, which is called Gold Medal Home Staging and Design. Jackie Edwards Flowers, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's been a while since I've seen you, spoken to you, I know. connected with you. So it's kind of cool to be able to do that. You look the same. Oh, you too. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Right? It's, I mean, it's so wonderful. To, yeah. After so many years to just be like, oh, okay. Right. Like, hi just again. Just pick right back up. Right, right, right. So yeah. let's jump right in. Let's jump right in. So tell us, where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? So I was born in Jamaica. I was born in Falmouth, Jamaica. I grew up in the Bahamas, in Nassau, Bahamas. And then I moved to the U.S. to come to college. Currently, I live in Los Angeles. Okay. And you asked me something else. Your craft. What is your craft? My craft is anything that involves creating beautiful spaces. So that is event planning at Cal State Northridge and also now uh, home staging for people getting ready to sell their homes. Mm, okay. I love that. Anything yeah. that creates beautiful spaces. Yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's, a, that's something that we all need, especially now since we're yeah. in so many, yeah, confined spaces, open spaces, but just any space. Yeah. yeah. So let's, let's go back and start with... Um, at the beginning with sports. Um, so when did you leave Jamaica for, and so are your parents Jamaican or are they Bahamian? Yes, all my family is Jamaican, grandparents, okay. aunts, uncles, everyone's Jamaican. Okay. Um, we moved to the Bahamas when I was seven. Okay. And in between, but I left Jamaica at one. My dad was doing his graduate studies at Princeton. So we okay. went for three years, Princeton University campus, living in graduate housing. And then we did three years in Turks and Caicos Islands. My dad's a pastor. So he went to a church in Turks and Caicos Islands. And then we moved to the Bahamas where he got a 
assigned to a new church. And so we got there when I was seven and stayed there all the way through when I left for Stanford at okay. 17. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So you, but you consider yourself a Bahamian. I do. I have citizenship um, mm-hmm. there. That's where I started my athletics career. That's where I, that's the country I represented at all of the championships and Olympics that mm-hmm. I competed in. So typically when I say I'm going home, I'm referring to the Bahamas, but home mm-hmm. is also Jamaica and okay. home is now, home is yeah. where I am, but home yeah. is yeah. the Bahamas. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So mm-hmm. tell us about how you came to be an athlete. How did, how did track enter into your space? So in the Caribbean or in the Bahamas specifically at that time, they did not have organized sports for youth. Like I know here in the States, you know, you see kids as young as three and four, they're out playing peewee football and Mm -hmm. baseball and all these things. We didn't have that. I don't know if they have it now, Mm -hmm. but they certainly didn't have it when I was a child. So I did not get started in any sort of organized sports until I was around 11 or 12. Mm -hmm. And that was just at my school where we had a grass track. Because at that time, the Bahamas, Nassau only had one main track. We now have two. Okay. But back then, it was just one. Okay. And, but no one had a track at their school. Mm-hmm. So I remember I was just running at a little meet at my, against other kids at the school on the grass track where they mark it out with the white chalk. And the gentleman that our national stadium is named after just happened to be there. I think he had some family member or niece or some relative of his was competing. So he was there and he happened to see me racing some other kids. So I don't know what it is that I did that was stood out to him, but he approached me and asked me if I was training or if I had a coach or where my parents were, et cetera. And I was like, no, no, not training, not interested. (laughs) (laughs) I was extremely shy, beyond what is, like, as I think about it now, it was too much. I was extremely shy. So I had no interest really in being around adults. It wasn't that I wasn't mm. interested in sports per se. Mm-hmm. I just didn't want to be in an environment where I knew I would be forced to have to engage with a bunch of people. Mm. So I said, thank you very much. No, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, but back then it was common to give an, an adult your parents' phone number if they asked for it. So mm-hmm. I did, even though I wasn't really interested because he asked me so I gave it to them Mm -hmm. to him sorry and he reached out to my parents and they said that I would come out to the track the following week and I was mortified (laughs) and my mother took me out there and basically told me that I was going to try it for a year she said if this gentleman who the stadium is named after has said that you have some kind of talent that he sees Mm. then you must have something that beyond mm-hmm. what is normal. Mm-hmm. So you're going to go out there and you're going to try it for a year. And if you don't like it after a year, you can stop. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure I cried every day for about 10 months. Oh, straight. No. <laughs> every day when she would drive me out there, I would just be, and she would, I would just cry tears and tears. And she would say, you know, when you finish crying all those tears, dry your face and walk inside because you're going in. Yeah. And we basically had an agreement because of my level of shyness that in order for me to go in, she would sit in the stands so that I could see her while I was out there 
uh-huh. doing whatever it was that I was being asked to do. So she agreed to do that, and she sat out there every single day in Aww. all that Bahamas heat. Right. Yeah. yeah. And made sure that I at least had that sort of anchor sure. to give me the comfort that I needed. And it took about 10, 11, almost the whole year for me to get comfortable. And then finally, I sort of, you know, I was making friends and yeah. starting to compete in some meets yeah. and finding success. So I started, it grew on me. So by right. the time I was 12, I was a track girl. Into it. Yeah. 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 You're officially a track That's girl. That's how it started. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And so you were... You were obviously a sprinter, um, mm-hmm. but were you? How did how did jumping come into the picture? So I started out sprinting because that's what he saw me do. Mm-hmm. Um, I also tried the high jump. Mm-hmm. That was the first uh, field event that I tried, mm-hmm. and I was pretty good. I I don't know it in meters now, but back then at twelve, I jumped five feet seven, which oh, was yeah. pretty, pretty good, good for, especially at twelve. Um, yeah. But I, and I was fairly tall for my age. I was already about five, six, five, seven at mm-hmm. that age. So mm-hmm. taller than the boys. And mm-hmm. you probably know about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and then I don't know why uh, it was suggested that I tried long jump because what I had was speed and power, which are the two components of being a good long jumper. Yep. So someone had me go over and try the long jump. And I think the first time, the very first time I tried it, I jumped around 14 feet something with no idea of what it was that I was doing, where I was taking off from, just run and like hold your legs up. Um, But by the, while I was still 12 years old, I jumped 18.3. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, at the time, I couldn't appreciate what that meant. Um, but that sort of that yeah, solidified your place. Yeah, was so significant that they're like, "This is the event that you should probably be doing along with the sprinting." Right. So that's kind of how I. It was just by trying, like, "Oh, try this event, try that event," and the long jump really sort of stuck. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Eighteen three yeah. at twelve. Yeah. With no clue, just like run down there really fast and hit the board as hard as you can. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I have to say you're a natural because when we were, so I don't know if I've ever spoken about this to my podcast audience. So I was a track and field athlete. Um, I was also a jumper, not a long jumper. I was a pretty terrible long jumper, but I was pretty good at the triple jump. (laughs) And so um, you just were effortless in every event actually like i don't really remember you ever being tired or winded and so i i totally get this professionalism of how you were able to have this long standing career because i was just like jackie just floats you know <laughs> even when she's down you know down the road, she just floats and it's just it was just always so it just looked so easy i mean you know i a track girl story is that there's always the big the big girls which are just the older girls who are more experienced and then there's the younger girls so i was a freshman when you were a senior Mm-hmm. And so obviously look up to the senior athletes, but it was just like, wow, she's just, it just looks effortless. So that was always something that I strive to want to um, implement into my technique is to be effortless, because I think that is what the stuff that champions are actually made of is when mm-hmm. you get to the point where it's less effort, it's all natural and it just flows. Right. And yeah. that comes with so much repetition Mm-hmm. You know, when you do something so many times over and over and over and over and over again, there comes a point 
when it flows from you without a lot of forethought. And then you can sort of hone in on technical mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. as opposed to nerves and all these other things that can sometimes hinder you. Mm-hmm. You can focus in on one or two things that'll separate you from being just pretty good to excelling. Mm-hmm. And it really was just by doing it over and over and again. And I, to your point about sort of being a natural at sports, that was like a good thing and a bad thing. Cause mm-hmm. pretty much every sport I tried in high school, honestly. And as I think back to it, and I talk with my kids about it. I don't know how I found the time mm-hmm. to fit all these sports in because I was pitcher on the softball team. I played field hockey for five years. I did equestrian for three years. I took piano for eight years. I was on the swimming team. I obviously was on the track team. I was in the choir. I just wanted, I was state. I mean, I was national spelling bee champion. Wow. I was two time junior bowling champion. Like I just tried all these things. I don't really know how I fit them in. Uh-huh. But I always had the mindset of if I put time into something, yeah, then I should be able to accomplish that thing, whatever it is. Right. So I always, I, I, it's the thing I try to convey to my boys that the effort level is what I look for. Not so much the output and the outcome, mm-hmm. sorry, mm-hmm. but what level of effort are you putting in? And if you do that, chances are very high that if you give yourself no sort of safety net, mm-hmm. which is what a lot of people do, like, oh, mm-hmm. I wasn't trying that hard anyway. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. then it doesn't matter if I didn't succeed. No, I was trying. Mm-hmm. And it was clear. I didn't have any fear about saying that I was trying to be good. Mm-hmm. So I didn't mm-hmm. leave myself any sort of fail safe. So if it didn't work out, it would not be because of a lack of effort. It would just be because that wasn't my thing or I wasn't good enough or whatever, but I, sh- I would never have the regret of like, what if I had just tried this little extra, you know, tried a little more or did a little more of this or not. I didn't have that. I went yeah. all out in everything and it, wherever it was, then that was it. Right. So did that, did, do you think that your first sport being track, did that in that shy, breaking that shyness, did that build that in you? Because, you know, for a year you were shy about it and then you finally, so did, by the time you were 12 and now you're, I guess, in junior high school at the time, Mm -hmm. had you then decided that you could break out of your shell or you would try anything despite feeling shy? Yeah, the shyness remained all the way. Like that, I was always like that. So I was already like that with my schoolwork. Okay. You know, like, for instance, when I entered the spelling bee, Mm -hmm. I think I, uh, the first year I did it, so I told my mother I wanted to enter the spelling bee. So she's like, okay, then we're going to get ready for the spelling bee. So we would like go through the dictionary, pages upon pages upon pages of words. And the first year I entered it, I came second. Okay. And I said, I know that I can win it. So we did it the following year and I put even more time into it. And I knew, like, I even practiced what I would do when I won, like the facial expression. I was like, I'm going to go like this with my face. (laughs) Because I was so sure that if I just put more effort in, I could do better. Yeah. So I was always like that. I was just like, I I have more in me to give. And so I'm going to find that and Mm -hmm. put it out there. 
Uh-huh. And so that's, I always was like that. And the shyness just, it was a hindrance in a way that if it involved, if whatever it was I was doing involved some sort of social aspect, that made it difficult. Mm. But that didn't take away from my willingness to sort of put 100% effort in to whatever mm-hmm. it was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So you are the stellar athlete and then you it comes time to decide where you're going to go for university. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did how did you go about choosing that, particularly coming from the, the, the Caribbean to right. the United States? How did you make that that transition, that that move? So um, at that time, there was no internet. Yeah. So we had not heard of Stanford (laughs) at that time. Okay. Didn't know anything about it. Uh And we knew of, like, we certainly knew that I wanted a track scholarship, Mm -hmm. um, knew about Ivy League schools, because I had mentioned my dad went to Princeton. So we knew about those schools, but they didn't offer athletic scholarships. So we had ruled out all Ivy League schools and the schools that were interested were schools like Florida, Tennessee, Texas, mm-hmm. Nebraska, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. schools that you know of for track purposes, LSU. Um, and then Brooks Johnson, our mm-hmm. coach, reached out to me from Stanford, sent a bunch of mail and um, called a few times. And we didn't really respond because we had never heard of it. Didn't know what it was. Didn't know where. We knew it was in California. And it just sounded far, like yeah. a million miles away. Right. It turned out that one of the coaches um, that was, was she coming to Stanford? I can't remember. She was at the University of Houston prior to coming to Stanford. Mm -hmm. And there was a gentleman who had just, who had, he ended up winning the triple jump bronze medal in the Olympics in 1992. His name is Frank Rutherford. He was at Houston Mm -hmm. and he told uh, the coach who was coming to Stanford about me. And that's how Brooks found out about me. Mm, okay. uh, so they reached out. We didn't respond. It ended up going to the, Brooks ended up flying to Nassau mm. because they were getting no response mm-hmm. from us. Mm-hmm. So he flew out, came to my house, came to the track. And that was when we sort of had a full appreciation of what Stanford was and what it had to offer and how great of an institution it was, both athletically athletically and academically. And that sort of fit me to the T because yeah. I really was struggling with choosing a school that was so heavily focused on sports that didn't have the academic component. So once we realized what Stanford had to offer, we're like, that sounds like what we've been trying to find. Mm-hmm. So we flew out on the recruiting trip and that was my first recruiting trip. And that was my only recruiting trip. I canceled all the other ones. Okay. I didn't realize how hard it was to get in. So had <laughs> I not gotten in, that would have been a pie in the face because I told all those other schools, like, I'm not coming there. I'm going to Before I'd even gotten in. So. Okay. Wow. Well, it was yeah. meant to be, clearly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was the place. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So you spend your your um your early, I guess, before professional career at, in California at Stanford. Mm-hmm. And tell us about your first nas- international competitive experience. So I had done some junior international competitions before mm-hmm. college. Mm-hmm. Um, and my family had traveled quite a bit just uh, for vacation. So, so I was used to traveling. Got it. But my first two years of, at Stanford were not easy. 
Mm. Let's say I had had this amazing high school career, was number one recruit and all these things. And then I got to Stanford and had trouble transitioning because I put on a lot of weight. The food that we eat in the Caribbean is very similar to probably the food that you might eat in different countries in Africa. It's very healthy and you don't even realize it's healthy. Yeah. Yeah. So that's just what you know, right? It's mm-hmm. food from the earth. It's an animal. It's a fish. It's something all organic or all healthy, natural foods. And that's what I was used to eating. Didn't matter the quantity. It was the quality of the food that I was eating. That was great. I had never had weight issues before. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I got to Stanford, started eating a bunch of dorm food and a bunch of stuff I shouldn't American stuff yeah (laughs) (laughs) and gained weight very quickly so Mm. within a few months I had put on like 20 something pounds which as a jumper that does not work right um right Brooks used to tell me all the time and for those of you listening Brooks was our head coach at Stanford University who took no punches and told you exactly what he thought he sure did thought it how he thought it he would tell me all the time that fat does not fly And that was correct. It didn't work. And I ended up having to have two knee surgeries at the end of my freshman year and at Mm. the end of my beginning of my junior year. I had to have surgery done again because I was trying to jump with too much weight. Mm. And it is not natural to run down at maximum speed and try to take off on one leg. And I was triple jumping. Right. Which is even more uh, pressure on your knees. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, with the additional weight that I had. And so it was not working. I couldn't even jump what I had jumped in high school my first two years at Stanford. Mm, mm -hmm. And it reached the point where Brooks sort of gave me an ultimatum at the end of sophomore year before I had that second surgery. And he told me if I came back to school at that weight after the summer that he would just, basically I would not be on the team. He said, keep your scholarship, go to class. We don't want to see you out here because you're damaging yourself. Mm. So mm. I went to the nutritionist, got a whole meal plan, and went home that summer to the Bahamas. Had my mother sort of help me monitor what I was eating and how and when. Lost all the weight very naturally, but it took the entire summer to do it. Yeah. And I came back to school like 26 pounds lighter than I had left. Mm-hmm. And that was what set me up for what would eventually be a successful professional career. Because had I not lost that weight, I would have just graduated, gone about my business. Right. Because right. I would have never known what other further potential I had. Yeah. So my junior year came back. That year, I improved in the long jump by a foot and a half, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is significant yeah. for those people who know anything about jumping in one year. Mm-hmm. I jumped, I had left school jumping my furthest, I think was 20 feet five. And that year I jumped 21, 10. Um, and I went to my first outdoor world championships in Tokyo, Japan and fin- as a junior and finished 10th in the mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. So that was my first competition and my first sort of taste of seeing all these people that I had only seen on television. I saw Jackie join a Kersey for the first time in person. And, you know, I didn't even know enough to be afraid, which was which sort of helped me to make the finals at that championships, because sometimes you're so young and you're so green, you don't even know that you're in an environment that you're supposed to be intimidated by. I was just like, oh, wow, this is amazing. All these people. <laughs> and 
by the time I qualified for my first Olympics the very next year and I had just won NCAA championships, I was then nervous when I got to the mm. Olympics because I had this greater expectation for myself mm -hmm. because I had made the finals the previous year and was the youngest person in the finals. I think I was only 19. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I now had this expectation that I was supposed to do something and that sort of overwhelmed me at that first Olympics that I attended or competed in. So it was interesting the way that that happened. And in fact, funny story, first Olympics, walking out onto the field, they have us in the two groups. If people who are listening don't know how it works. If let's say there's 50 jumpers at the Olympics, they split you into two groups. Yeah. One group of 25, second group of 25, you jump at the same time. And the people with the top 12 distances after three jumps move on to the finals. So I just happened to be designated in the same group as Jackie Joyner Kersey. I was in the order of jumpers ahead of her. So you walk out onto the field in the order that you're going to jump. So let's say I was jumper number four and she was jumper number nine. It's random. Yeah. So you're walking out, you know, waving at the crowd. And I hear all the people in the crowd saying, Jackie, Jackie, Jackie. <laughs> <laughs> and I had just won NCs, right? So I'm thinking, oh, wow, it's all the way in Barcelona. And these people know that I won NCAA championships. And you wave at the crowd. <laughs> and I'm like waving and turning around. And then as I sort of turn almost like a 360, I see her waving. And instantly it's like, oh, my oh. God, these people are not talking to me. <laughs> they don't know boo-hoo about me. And I like pull my hand down and just was like, okay. And she saw me and I'm sure she knew that yeah. I thought. So yeah, that was a little embarrassing. Oh, that was how my funny. First, yeah. <laughs> so did you all eventually become friendly, you know, seeing yeah. each other on the circuit? She yeah. helped me a little, like that first world championships when mm -hmm. I got out onto the field, the way you put your mark down for where you're going to jump was a little bit different from what I was accustomed to, I was just used to like putting down a piece of tape or my shoe or something and I went to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think she saw me just kind of standing there looking like deer in the headlights because everyone else was taking these markers out of the basket. Ah. I didn't know what they were doing with it. Right. And so she tapped me and was like, you gotta, you gotta get something out of that basket and put down on the runway. That's what you use for your marker. And I was like, oh. Nope. Okay, thank okay. you. Okay, yeah. So yeah, and she's always been very generous very kind, very inspirational to me um, yeah. as I watched her throughout her career. Just not only because we had the same first name, mm -hmm. we were both named after Jackie Kennedy Onassis. And oh, okay. I don't know. I just kind of liked watching the trajectory of her career and how she handled herself off the field, which to me was also important, right? I've always been a person yeah. who has felt that the way you carry yourself off of the field is just as important. And I've never been a fan of like rude, disrespectful people that feel mm -hmm. that they are something special just because of a talent that honestly you were born with. Mm -hmm. Yes, you honed it and you trained and you worked your butt off to get to where, but there's a certain part of that you have nothing to do with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you, I don't feel that there's any glory in walking around like head up in the clouds for something that you really had no control over in the, at the onset. 
it's the same thing, honestly, in my opinion, with physical beauty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't understand how people who are born what other people may consider to be attractive walk around like acting like it's this huge accomplishment. Like, oh, everyone should be lauding me and praising me for my beauty. Like, you didn't even do anything to earn that. That's just a blessing. (laughs) Right. And you yeah. should move around in the world in that way. Be gracious yeah. and not have this expectation that people should treat you some kind of way just because you're an attractive person. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. And then what? Right. Anyway, right. It's, it's, simple, it's, thing. it's just all true. goes in the same vein. Yeah. Though. Yeah. 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 And then what is true. Um, yeah. So you have this, you know, wonderful career mm-hmm. as an athlete. Um and so you're getting towards an age where obviously, you know, you can't be an athlete forever. So how, how did you start to envision your transition? What, what, were, what went through your head? How did you start to figure out, okay, um, I feel like I'm going to retire soon. Mm-hmm. But how did you make that move? I had always sort of wanted to prepare for life post-track. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. while I was competing, I got a master's degree it took a little longer than it probably should have because I was always getting on a plane, flying someplace. Right. But right. I was always mindful that mm-hmm. I should be making sure that once my career is over, I'm ready to do something else. Yeah. The problem was I wasn't sure what that, excuse me, what that thing should be. So I got a master's degree in sports psychology because I, well, actually, first I went to law school. I started law school. I mean, oh yes, I remember talking to you when you were in law school. Yeah, yeah. I did not finish. I went to Temple University, yeah. and I thought cool. I wanted to be an attorney. I was training on the East Coast. I thought, okay, this makes perfect sense. So I'll do both while I can. And um, but I sort of knew that I didn't really want to be an attorney. It was just something that I had said I would do. Mm-hmm. So I was sort of going on that alone. And my brother was a doctor. I was going to be a a lawyer. You know, it sounded good, but I didn't actually want to be an attorney. So, and my parents were paying for it. So I decided after the first year to not continue to have them waste their money just so I could have a degree that I would never use. Right. So I stopped. And then a few years later, still competing, I decided to get a master's degree in sports psychology because I was realizing how important the mental component of competing was. And I thought, Mm. oh, this could be useful, not just for myself, but Mm -hmm. beyond this, I could help other athletes. Mm -hmm. Then that was around my third Olympics. I finished that degree. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But I was still competing well and still enjoying what I was doing. So kind of went on a little longer than I I didn't really plan to do five Olympics. There's really Mm. not a need to do that. Sometimes (laughs) I look back, I'm like, that was a little, okay. Could have stopped at like three or something. Anyway, (laughs) because, you know, there is something to be said to be a 37-year-old, which is what I was at my last Olympics. Ah, And then you retire and then you go try to go in the workforce and and you're having no practical work experience. Right, right, right. Because who wants to hire? Like, that's cool. Yeah, you went to Stanford. Yeah, you could jump in Sam. But what can you do for my company? Sure. You know. There's not a lot of people that want to hire someone if they don't know you personally and Mm -hmm. don't know that you have a brain in your head. They Mm -hmm. just sort of put you in the jock category, even if you went to Stanford. Mm -hmm. So it's not the easiest transition. And it's definitely not easy if you yourself are not sure what you want to do. Mm -hmm. So that was more I tore my Achilles to 
my career ended when I tore my Achilles. It was oh. a right around the time I was planning to retire anyway, so it wasn't this yeah. huge it wasn't career um, ending. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was obviously the rehab was difficult and just experiencing that mm-hmm. was not fun, but mm-hmm. it sort of snapped me into this reality of like, okay, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And I realized even though I'd gotten a degree, I was I still wasn't sure. I didn't know what I liked. I, mm-hmm. I couldn't figure out what was going to give me the same motivation and passion and energy that sports did. Because mm-hmm. for so long, I didn't need anybody to tell me in the morning, get up, go to the track, work out. That's what I wanted to do. I was passionate about it. It moved me. It excited me. And I couldn't quite figure out what else was going to do that for me. So I kind of just transitioned into personal training, not because it was some great passion of mine, but more so because it was an easy thing to do for me. I didn't dislike it, but I didn't love it Mm -hmm. and did that for a little too long Mm -hmm. just because I Mm -hmm. made pretty good money and I had flexibility in my schedule and like I said, I liked it. I just didn't love it. Right. Um, yeah. I didn't really want to be a collegiate track coach because I could have done that, which is mm-hmm. what a lot of athletes do. Mm-hmm. I was, I knew I wanted to try something that was unrelated to sports because I feel like I have all these other talents that are not sports related. And a lot of times people will just sort of put you in a box and feel like that's all you can do. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I knew that I was a creative type person and I wanted, it had to be something to do with that. I just didn't know what. Mm-hmm. So over the years, I've always been that person that's helped people, like if they moved into a new home, like help them to get their house put together. Or if they were having an event, I could help them help them set up and make it look like there was, you know, a lot of forethought and plan that went into it. That was all, always something that appealed to me. Okay. So I sort of realized that maybe this was where I needed to try and hone, uh, hone my craft or move into the next stage of my um, career. But again, I had no work experience. And who's going to hire you with, you know, like, I just know how to do it. I Trust me. I know how. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I created, I started up an event planning company uh-huh. and, you know, did some work pro bono, did some, got, there's some apps and stuff on that you can use to get work. So I did that initially. And I, I figured I needed to basically create some kind of portfolio yeah. that I could present to people and show my work instead of just talking about it. Because I mean, I could say I can do all kinds of stuff. If you can't show or prove to somebody, they don't want to spend their hard earned money Right, an unproven quantity, right? So I did that. I got enough work under my belt to where I could go out to, because I knew I wanted a job first, like Mm. someone to hire me. Mm -hmm. So I could have uh, regular work. And I liked the idea of nine to five. I know a lot of people Mm -hmm. are like, why would you want to transition from not having structure in your day to having someone tell you when to it appealed to me. I wanted to have that kind of structure in my day. So I I sent out a whole bunch of resumes and got a lot of no's. And, but the one great thing about being an athlete is you deal with rejection fairly yeah. well. 
yeah. better than most people yeah. because mm-hmm. you deal with failure all the time mm-hmm. as an athlete. Mm-hmm. You're not walking around winning everything and you exactly. learn how to not take things too personally and mm-hmm. to just sort of keep pushing through it. So I was never really deterred. Sometimes I'd feel like disappointed or sad that like, man, I just cannot have get someone to appreciate what I feel are my talents, but I was not deterred. And I would just keep pushing forward, pushing forward until finally I knew the day would come when someone would give me an opportunity and that happened. So I started working at an outlet mall that had lots and lots of events. I was their event coordinator. Okay. They were looking for someone with my type of skill set, even without a lot of experience. They liked the fact that I was an athlete because they knew what that meant. Mm. That I would be a diligent, hard right, discipline. Person. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that was sort of my inroads to event planning, and then uh, that I worked there for a little while, and then I went on to get a position at Cal State Northridge, which is where I still am. That the dean of the college where I work in ran track at Notre Dame, okay. so he can appreciate what that means, also. Yeah. And it was also it's almost like the right fit, right? Sure. He's a track guy. He could appreciate what it meant. He saw my work and pictures and portfolio work. So he could be he was able to put both together. Sure. And and appreciate what I could offer um the department at Cal State Northridge. So Got it. that's how that came to be. That's right. a long winded answer, but it, it it says it all. So yeah. let me put a pin on on this new career and you know, with your background in sports psychology, and we've just come off the Olympics, and the, I guess one of the biggest headlines was Simone Biles, and you posted a few times on Facebook about you know the situation. What are your what are your thoughts generally on how her 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 taking a break and coming back, mm-hmm. and and how we as you know the general public can and should really start to think about this, the athlete, fan, athlete, mental health situation? Right. Um, So aside from my own master's degree in sports psychology, Mm -hmm. my husband is a sports psychologist. Mm. He has a PhD. He works Mm -hmm. for the Lakers. He works for San Francisco Giants. He has, uh, works at a few universities. So I have a keen insight into not just my own perspective, but the things that he works with professional athletes on all the time. He worked with numerous um, Olympians on this U.S. track team. And that's actually how I met him. Mm. He was the sports psychologist for the U.S. Olympic team in 08. And he was a sports psychologist for their world championship team. So that's how I connected with him. So I have more conversations around sports psychology than probably the typical person. Yeah. And just having gone through my own struggles and having people give you their opinion about what you should be doing and what's in your best interest when you're telling them that what's in your best interest is something different. Mm-hmm. I feel that I could appreciate what Simone Biles was going through, um, even though I don't know anything about doing a flip or mm-hmm. <laughs> whatsoever. Mm-hmm. What I could understand just as a person who had been a professional athlete was the level of 
difficulty and the degree of danger that is involved in her sport right. far exceeded what was involved in my sport. Right. So if I was having a bad day or if my head was not in it for whatever reason, and trust and believe there are reasons that the outside world may not know of that you're dealing with something something that significantly impacts your performance. And they may just see the result and be like, oh, Jackie sucked today. And they have no idea right. all this other stuff that you're dealing with mm-hmm. that heavily impacts your performance. However, if I have a day like that and I still kind of push through as everybody wants you to do and you'd want to as your as an athlete anyway, the worst thing that's going to happen to me is I'm going to have a horrible performance. I'm mm-hmm. not going to die. I'm not going to break my neck. I'm not going to risk my life, literally. And this woman who has accomplished everything and that anyone could imagine in her sport at a degree and at a difficulty level that exceeds what far exceeds what anyone else has done is telling us all she cannot in this moment do what she needs to do. And I spoke with a friend who's actually a sports psychologist not that long ago, and she was saying, I've worked with gymnasts who've had the twisties and they were able to just take out, you know, components and make it a little easier so they can handle it. I'm like, but everybody's not the same. Right. And you can't say because this one person could do it, that this other person could do it. And these other people that you're working with are not Simone Biles. They're not doing five flips and eight. Right. Exactly. So I cannot imagine. I tried to use a long jump perspective. Mm hmm. There's a two and a half hitch long jump, and then there's a one and a half hitch long jump, and then there's a hang long jump. Different techniques, all landing in the same space, give or take. Mm -hmm. If I was to go to the Olympics with a certain technique of jumping, I do one and a half. If someone told me that at the games, because of whatever you're dealing with, you should switch and do two and a half. Just do it at the games. Just that one time. Come on, man. That's impossible. Mm -hmm. You cannot unlearn something and learn something at that high level that quickly. Right. So what my friend had been saying was like, she should just take out a couple of the twists. Like what? (laughs) Really? Right. She should just, her timing is set up to execute at this level. So now you're telling her to, first of all, reduce the level of her output Mm -hmm. and then risk her well-being physically, like Mm -hmm. literally risk it so that we can all be appeased because she went out there and pushed through. Absolutely right. not. Like it right. irritated me so much yeah. that people felt that this woman made this decision so cap like it was cavalier, like, oh, I just don't want to lose. Right. Or I'm not at my best, so I'm just gonna not compete. Like who does that? Yeah, exactly. And it, <laughs> it was it was amazing to me. That people made it that simple. Sure, exactly. And so I think that is the misunderstanding that people have because they think of sports as entertainment. Right. And so they're not understanding that, yes, people risk their lives. Even NFL NFL players risk their lives. I Mm -hmm. mean, the long-term effects, I know former NFL players that have um, CTE, the post-traumatic, you know, this is real. This is life-changing. So I think, you know, the awareness, I appreciate her for that. Absolutely. And also that her her team was better for it. Yes. Yeah. And the thing is, if it's a physical injury, people are all on your team. Oh, we're so Mm -hmm. sorry. You know, Mm -hmm. we wish you would have been able to compete. But if Mm -hmm. someone's telling you that this thing that is affecting me equally as if the the level of the impact is as grave as something physical, 
but people are so anti you saying right. that. Right. And and no one is saying that it should just revert to like, oh, my head hurts. I'm having a mental day. I'm mm-hmm. not okay. No, mm-hmm. nobody's saying that. Or I'm just sad, so I don't feel like competing. It's right. not most athletes who work that hard to accomplish something are not yeah. going to just exactly. like trick it off on the fact that they're not feeling it that day. It, exactly. That exactly all that work that they put in, they're not going to just nullify it for some reason that is right just like unimportant it just i I don't get it i thought i was thinking of you and triple jumping like were you a double arm triple jumper um i know i was a single arm so then imagine if at the olympics someone's saying hey flo today forget that single arm i need you today just for today (laughs) go ahead and do a double arm (laughs) exactly yeah you want me to jump four feet like right exactly it doesn't work that way it takes yeah. years to hone the mm-hmm. specific skill that you're trying to execute and then for someone to tell you just change it up today right right and and still bring us a medal and still bring the gold yeah yeah exactly okay. yeah. yeah it doesn't yeah. work like that right right so, so i definitely I mean, appreciate that perspective yeah yeah you know, it was, I think people need to hear i'm that. happy for her that she knew you know, we know ourselves better than everyone else. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, she was like, y'all can say what you want to say. I'm not out here. Because when she goes out there, twists and turns and breaks her necks and can't, can't walk after that, everybody else who cheered her on to do it is going to go about their business. Exactly. They're less. Exactly. She exactly. You know, has injured herself. Exactly. Right. So, exactly. Yeah, not there for that. <laughs> okay. So, um, so, you you got your first position as a event planner, and so and then that led to your current position. So you've lived in many places, and I, this is where I kind of ask, like, wh- why the where? So how did you come to be living in and working and playing where you live now? So I moved to LA to train for my last Olympics. Okay. I had been training back at Stanford actually. Okay. And then the coach there was leaving. And so I had no further reason to be there. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to, for my last Olympics in 08 and a couple of world championships that were coming up prior to 08, work with Mike Powell, who's okay. a record holder in the men's long jump. He was down here at UCLA. So yeah. I moved down here to work with him. Okay. And um, that's how I ended up in LA. And then I, you know, life finished life my happened. career. Mm-hmm ended up meeting my husband to be, I mean, I had already, I already knew him, but he lived in San Diego. We ended up, he ended up getting a job with the LA Clippers. He moved to Los Angeles. So it just was kind of like, this is where. I it was, it be. was a little bit of work and a little bit of love. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Nice. So let's get into your, your, your latest endeavor, which is mm-hmm. your, your latest entrepreneurial pursuit, which mm-hmm. was a pandemic pivot. Right. Um, so you're sitting at home, there are no events. And I know so many event planners that were just like, wow, you know, having to do the Zoom thing or figure that out, that was a whole other piece. But but having said that beautiful spaces was is a big part of your your uh, your inspiration, doing Zoom meetings and Zoom events, I'm sure was not gonna cut it. So how did you decide and come to the um the gold medal prize that you now are? Are nurturing. So I was sitting around at home last year, 
we had been working from home um, from the university starting last year, March. And I would do some events on Zoom, but the, the legwork involved in doing a Zoom meeting is nowhere near what you know it involves to do an in-person event. So mm-hmm. I was finding myself with a lot of free time and the kids were homeschooling. So I was basically like a teacher mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. just not having, I didn't want to watch television all day. I didn't want to just kick my feet up and do nothing and receive my paycheck. That's cool to still keep paycheck, but I like doing, I like sure. being busy. Yeah. So organically it came up that a friend of ours was looking to sell a property. Um, he was doing some real estate and he was talking to my husband. His name's Ross. He was talking to Ross and saying to him that he needed to find someone to help him stage the home for sale. And Ross was like, oh, Jackie's pretty good at that stuff. So she could probably help you. So I spoke to him and that didn't actually end up happening, but it gave me the idea like, you know what, that's sort of, I love doing that kind of thing and I know I can. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe that's something I could look into because, and I was trying to think of something I feel like if you're going to do a side hustle kind of thing, you should really enjoy it because it shouldn't be like more work. You should find some joy and passion in it. So for sure that did that for me. And, but I didn't really understand the business. Like how do you market it? How do you find Mm -hmm. realtors? Mm -hmm. I didn't know a bunch of realtors Mm -hmm. other than the one that sold us the house we live in. So, Mm -hmm. but I really wanted to sort of understand how that industry worked. So as I do, because I wanted to know how to do it, I took a whole course, paid thousand dollars, took a course that was like three weeks long. So I could learn the verbiage, get the contract paperwork, all the terminology so that if I was in a situation where I was speaking to someone that I would sound knowledgeable and that I wouldn't just be like, hey, I know how to make your house look pretty. Right. (laughs) Um, So I did that. um, And in that course, I learned so much and I got all the paperwork that I needed. I figured out how to, I created my own website, which I am no website person, but you know, I know what looks good and what doesn't. So yeah. I was able to, took me a little time to do that. I got all my marketing materials together. And then they told you how to do all that SEO stuff. To oh yes. Sure. I know nothing about it, but I know how to follow instructions. So yeah. I type this word and do all the stuff. So turns out I show up on Google, right? So, right. and I found this app. I had used the app before for event planning called Thumbtack. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I signed up on Thumbtack. I got all my stuff together and launched this home staging design and this home staging company. And my first job was with the realtor that sold us this house. She had stopped by afterwards. She saw what I had done with the home. So she's like, oh, for sure, if I have a property. So she was actually having an event at her house. So it was kind of like an event planner type job, but also staging because mm-hmm. she wanted stuff to stay permanently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some of it, some of it would stay permanently. Some would um, be temporary for the, her event. So I did that. That was my first job. And then I signed up on Thumbtack. I needed pictures, right? Yeah. So I took pictures of my own home. I took mm-hmm. pictures of her event. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what I started with. Okay. And I 
the first person that contacted me wanted staging done the very next day. And I was like, I have what? Uh, they just wanted, it was small. Thank goodness. It was a small thing. Yeah. They just wanted a master bedroom and a patio. I had this really cool air mattress thing that blows up with the legs as well. It yeah. had the frame and the mattress. Yeah. And so that's what I used. And I like ran out to home goods store and bought all this stuff. And yeah. That was my first job. And that was like last year, I want to say October uh-huh. or something. Uh-huh. And yeah, Friday, I finished my 30th home. Wow. So it just kind of took off. And every time I would do a home, I would, you know, take pictures. So I had yeah. better and better and better pictures. Yeah. So I could put on my website, I could put on my thumbtack profile. Yeah. And I've just been inundated with requests. So last wow. week I did, I took a little break actually, because it was so much. I was getting sure. so many offers yeah. to do homes that it was going on away. I didn't even know it would take off to that level. Sure. So I took a little break and then got back last week and started again and did three homes last week. In fact, that's why I was rushing around this morning because I had okay. to destage a property. This yeah. Morning. Yeah. But yeah, so it's been fun. It's been, I love doing that. Yeah. I just want to pace myself and not sure. Do, too much because I don't need now. to. Mm-hmm. I just want to mm-hmm. enjoy making people's spaces look beautiful, uh, but I don't want it to be a burden. Right. Right. I feel like CSUN is my job and this is, I say, my joy. Yeah. For to have a little fun on the side. Exactly. So, so just on the mechanics of staging, so do you have like this now huge garage that you now store your? So I, have, I have a couple storage units. Okay. They're not big. I just have accessories. So okay. I don't want to rent. I don't want to own beds furniture. and pouches yeah. and all mm-hmm. this stuff. Mm-hmm. There's furniture companies that. Oh, you rent, rent from stagers. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they rent to regular people. They also rent to stagers. So their price okay. points are such that you can rent from them. Okay. Got it. And, and make your profit. So okay. I have all the pretty stuff. I have the pillows, the bedding, uh, the artwork. Yeah. The stuff you put in the bathroom, candles, plants, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. And I have a couple like 10 by 10 storage units. Sure. And that's it. Okay. If you can't fit in there, then I'm not having it. Right. But I can do, I can probably, do, I have enough stuff to do about 10 homes. Mm-hmm. Depending on the size, right? Some sure. homes are bigger than others. But, right. Right. But now I kind of have it down to a science as to how I prepare to do the homes mm-hmm. and what I take with me. And mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty good at just seeing the space, making sure I have everything and mm-hmm. getting it done. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of fun. I don't know what the end part of this would be because once I have all this stuff now, it seems like, well, now I just have to keep going. And, you know, you make more profit as you keep going because I don't have to keep rebuying all this exactly. stuff. Exactly. stuff now. Exactly. I, when I do a property, I already have everything. So my right. profit margin has gone up significantly. Significantly, right. So, right. yeah, it's a good it's a good side hustle. Yeah, it sounds that. like it. And if fun. anybody out there wants a nice side hustle and you like creating beautiful spaces. Yeah. And so you're, you're, you do um, Los Angeles and the surrounding areas. I kind of go, yeah, I, I've gone further than I planned to go. Because mm. like there's one realtor, he's used me now like three times. And this last time he had me do a house that was like an hour away, which I really had no interest in doing. But We've worked client. together now a few yeah. times and he 
trusts my work and sure. it's good to just sort of have that relationship. Yeah. But yeah, typically Los Angeles and surrounding areas. Okay. And we know yeah. Los Angeles is pretty big though. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. that's a yeah. good amount of territory. Sure, <laughs> sure, 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 sure. So um, that website again will be in the show notes, folks. So, um, and you can say it now, your website for the- um... uh, The website is Gold Medal. HSD for home staging and design, goldmetalhsd.com. Great, 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 great. Wonderful. So let me ask you my global speak question. And so this is where we ask, I ask you to tell us, to share a word, phrase, or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and how you came to value it as global speak. Um, I think the phrase that one of the phrases, because I got a whole bunch of different kinds of stuff, but <laughs> <laughs> this one sort of translate no ma- translates no matter what the situation is. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It's, my mother used to say, like, where there's a will, there's a way. Okay. And I'm the person who wants to try all kinds of things. I don't yeah. want to just be pigeonholed into being this one thing. So I figure if I want to try something, even if I don't know how, like, I don't know anything about creating a website. So I look it up. And I find out how to create a website. And then people will contact me like, oh, my gosh, your website looks so great. Who'd you have? I'm like, look, I just used it up myself and I figured out how to do it. Yeah. Um, Same thing with the home staging. I know how to make a room look good, but I don't know how to get any clients. So then I take a class. Yeah. And they tell me how to do that. And so I follow that. I want to be in a spelling bee. Okay. How do you win the spelling bee? You go get a dictionary. And learn a whole bunch of words. Right. You know what I mean? So whatever the thing is, there is a way to get that thing done. Okay. These locks that I have in my hair that Mm -hmm. I have never had locks before. Mm -hmm. And they grew out and I wanted to have them redone. And I did not want to go back to the hairstylist. So I Googled, how do you redo the locks? Turns Mm -hmm. out it's not that hard to do. Right. And I've now done it three times. There you go. Every time people are like, oh my gosh, you got them redone. I'm like, yep, got them redone right in the house. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's a good one. Where there is a will, there is a way. Yeah. Right, right, right. Which dovetails to my next question, which is a mindset hack. So this is... This is where I ask, you know, what what are some of your practices? What do you do to get your mind in another zone to just hack it? As as all people do, I go through ups and downs and turnarounds and all kinds of stuff that people have to deal with challenges. But what I don't do is I don't allow myself to dwell on something negative mm. for and some indeterminate amount of time. So I, if, I, if something's really upsetting for me, you know, I'm going to give myself time to whether it's I, if I need to grieve, if I need to be sad, if I need to be mad, I mean, but I'm not going to stay stuck on that thing. Mm-hmm. So I give mm-hmm. myself the opportunity to deal with the emotions that come with it. And then, you know, for some things, it may be a longer period of time, but I'm giving myself a cutoff date or cutoff mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. to then shift on to how do I solve this problem? Mm. And if it's something like relationship-wise, well, that might take a little longer because I might need a little more time to heal my wounds. Right. But I'm not going to just be in a year talking about the same thing that happened yeah. and yeah. how woe is me because here I am still doing the same nonsense I was doing 
that right. got me in that problem in the first place. It's the same thing with like work or ki- with kids or whatever. I deal with that thing. And then my next thing is how do I move on from this? What can I do? Because mm-hmm. the doing of things helps me to get over it. Mm-hmm. So if it's mm-hmm. something where mm-hmm. like, oh, I, I'll talk about relationships again. Oh, it was a horrible breakup. Like that, everyone deals with that. I needed to do something. There was a relationship some years ago that I was just like, how do I get out of this cycle of sadness? Mm-hmm. And I needed to go do like be proactive. So I created this whole routine for myself. I would go to the beach and then I would go to the library and then I would go hit golf balls, which I know nothing about hitting golf balls. But it sort of gave me this space to be outside. And then I'd go to the pet shelter and walk dogs. And just by doing and being like making a plan for myself, it took me out of just dwelling on sadness or madness or whatever it is. So I'm always about that. What can I do? Right. Right. And that always helps me to come out of whatever the thing is. Wow. That's great. That's a great, that's great advice. The doing of the doing of it is the transition. Yeah, do yeah. something. Mm-hmm. Do Instead something. Of just yeah, dwelling on it. Right, right, yeah. right, right, right. So you're you like to work. You like to be busy. But what mm-hmm. do you do in your me time? Are you a reader? Are you a watcher? Are you a listener? I like to watch a little bit of trash TV. Okay, what are your favorite trash shows? Uh, well, some of it's not trash, but I do. I could watch. HGTV. That's not trash. Okay. TV. Okay. No, but that's I can it. watch HGTV yeah. like all day. Sure. And it gives me all kind of tips. Yeah. However, I will watch The Bachelorette <laughs> <laughs> or Bachelor. Yeah. Those are pretty. Yeah. Those are kind of addicting. That's yeah. Kind of it's like I get caught up and my husband will walk in the room and be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're still watching this. I'm like, hey man, go watch one of them Born Identity movies that you watch a thousand times. <laughs> Um, so (laughs) I'll watch that. I don't have a, I don't binge watch like Netflix and all that. I can't. Yeah. I like to watch shows when they come on once a week. I'm not trying to sit for 10 hours and watch something back to back to back. Got it. Um, I have watched Housewives of Atlanta. Mm -hmm. I've seen a few seasons of that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do back when you could go to the movies. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite things to do was to go to the movie theater. I didn't need, I can go by myself. I can go with my husband and go, I don't care who, with right. whom, without somebody. I love that. Experience. Just go in there and be yeah. quiet. I, I don't even care if no one else is in the theater. Yeah. Yeah. I go and get the kids pack. Yeah. <laughs> in the movie theater and just get away for Enjoy. two hours. Yeah. Love yeah. that. So I'm sort of, missing that okay. activity. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Any, what about reading? Is that, are you more of a, you are more I of a I used to read far mm-hmm. more. Mm-hmm. I find now with kids that like, as soon as I start reading something, they come with all these questions and then mm-hmm. I, I don't get to finish. So mm-hmm. I start all kinds of books and I used to be a voracious, like I, I read yeah. a lot and now I, I have books that I want to read. Right. They just pile up. Of course. So of I'm, course. I was reading one by T. 
T.D. Jakes. Uh, it's called Crushing. Um, God Turns Pressure into Power. Okay. And it's just about how you turn like negative experiences into positive, mm-hmm. which is kind of how I like to function. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you see successful people and success looks different to people. Yeah. What I'm talking about successful is individual. So whatever sure. that looks like to that person. Sure. Sometimes you see a person and you just see the finished product yeah. and you think, oh man, look how easy they have it. People right. would say to me all the time, oh, you're so lucky to have competed in these games or to have gone to Stanford. I'm like, well, I mean, luck had something to do with genetics. Sure. Exactly. Right. But yes. then it wasn't luck after that. Right. Because I put in some work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's the same thing when you're dealing with negative or bad experiences. You have mm-hmm. to put some work in to get mm-hmm. out of that. It, mm-hmm. Unless you just are happy to be sad and mad all day. Mm-hmm. If you want to get out of that, then you got to do something. So I was reading that book. Okay. It sort of reinforces some yeah. thought patterns. And even someone like T.D. Jakes, you, people probably, you know, don't realize all the. Mm-hmm stuff that people that go through. gone into it. Yeah. 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 Well, those are nice tips. Those again yeah. will be in the show notes. So you'll get to yeah. choose those and, and look into those as well. If you're interested listeners. So Jackie, thank you so much for your time. This has been so great catching up. Thank you. I'm, I'm, it's been cool. I feel like we were just kicking it. I know. Like the other day, <laughs> except it's been, uh, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I want to say the number of years. <laughs> I know, right? right? I have a reunion that was supposed to be last year. That's now this yeah. year. But yeah, it's uh, it's been a while. Can I ask, what do you do to maintain your physical presentation of yourself? Okay. Okay. That's a good question. So I... um. <laughs> the, my runner knees, runners knees caught up to me um, mm-hmm. last year before mm-hmm. the pandemic. So before then, I still ran. You know, I mm-hmm. would do you know anywhere from five to ten miles. You know, a couple times a week. Yeah, and then um, runners knees caught up. So and that was part of that was a combination of you know when we were on a team and and doing organized sports, we stretched every day. Right. So you know, years later, I'm stretching, yeah, I'm, I'm doing yoga and thinking, oh yeah, I stretch, you know, it's great. And, mm-hmm. but I hadn't been stretching enough. So I, I was running probably more on my joints than on my muscles. So I didn't have the strength that right. was, that was, and so right. that contributed to, so I've been rehabbing my knees for the last year plus. So mm-hmm. I just started running again. And this is, I'm being very ginger with myself, like running maybe once a week, Mm-hmm. Um, and running in new shoes because I've I've discovered Ultras, which are a new brand. What is, you, what is it? Ultra. Oh. A L T R A. They're zero drops, which are good oh. for me because I also have back challenges. Okay. Um. So, but but I traded running for walking, and so fortunately, you know that that helps. So I mm-hmm. walk instead of running, or when I don't run. And I think it's diet, more so diet. I mean, I do yoga. I love yoga. Mm-hmm. I, um, a few In 2017, I went to a yoga retreat in um, okay. Goa. And that was like pretty life-changing in the, in the sense that I really started to look at yoga less as, um, less as a physical, but more of the holistic um, mm. practice that it is. So 
So I don't have to go hard in my yoga all the time. You know, I just know that I, I didn't need to do a little bit a, a day and it's, it's fine. I think that's keep... where I made a mistake. I tried yoga one time mm. when I was still competing mm -hmm. and I made the mistake oh, thank you. to think that because I was so fit yeah. that I could do anything athletic. And that's all I had known. If it was athletic, I can do it. Right. So I went to the doggone yoga class and took advanced class for okay. the first, had never done anything. and was like, oh, I'm gonna just go right here. Almost died within <laughs> 10 minutes in the back, trembling and sweating and just <laughs> like mortified as I'm looking at all the other people like, why are they I so relaxed? Like right. they look so comfortable. Yeah. And I'm dying. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't go back because I was like, maybe I, I don't know what I'm doing. So I think I just made the mistake. I underestimated other people's ability to put time in and be great at something and thought I could just rock up in there. Mm, and do it. Mm -hmm, <clears throat> because yoga is one that you do have to take time because you can overdo yeah. it. And, and that yeah. happened to me. Early, yeah. like earlier, I did Bikram yoga because that was the athletic one mm -hmm. and I injured my back. And so mm -hmm. then, you know, in transitioning, I had to realize, oh, no, this is a take time because yeah. of that that deep muscle stuff that you don't know that you have. I mean, you know, there's trauma from 20, however many years of competing, right. you know, right. or, or ex exercising really hard. So so diet wise. Um, yeah, I just am. I, I think that's a big part of it. Um, sleep. I definitely don't deprive mm -hmm. myself of sleep like I right. try to get, um, I my body generally gets up between 5.30 and 6 most days. Mm -hmm. So I don't always get up. If I went to bed at 2, I'm not going to get up. But right, I, right, right. I try to make sure to get at least like six hours of sleep. Yeah. And um, and so diet-wise, I usually eat, I'm like pesca vegan. So I eat fish on occasion, but mostly mm -hmm. plant-based mm -hmm. and no dairy. And um, lots of water, obviously. Lots of what? Water. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, lots of water. And uh, yeah, I would just say that's that's kind of the... Just eating sensibly. Yeah. Exactly. I, You know, when I was single, it was easier. Yes, it is. That's what I was going to say. Like, mm -hmm. these Chirons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I see the Chirons food in there and I'll be like, oh, let me just try, I'll just try some. Yeah. I mean, I'm still doing well and still have abs and still have, but it's just... Sometimes I'm like, man, like I work out a little bit more now than I used to. Mm -hmm. When I first retired, I didn't work out at all for like mm. two years. Nothing. Oh, wow. Okay. I, I was just done. I'm like, I need a moment. A to break. Just... Yeah. And the thing was, everything looked the same. Yeah. So I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. No workouts <laughs> and still holding it down. Yeah. And then, but then I was like, I know that cannot last forever. Yeah. <laughs> so. I, you know, I gradually started to do something, but I was, I didn't really do that much when I was training people yeah. and it, it was really just me showing people, but I didn't really, okay. You didn't do the work do that much workout, but it still worked. Right. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. then, you know, it's like the past two or three years is when I've noticed like, no, you actually have to earn these muscles that you're trying to have. Yeah, that's that's what you I think. Can't like just after, hold on anymore. Right, exactly. And that yeah. was the that was the wake up call with the running. I was like, oh, okay, I gotta build muscle. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. That the pandemic has helped me with that because going into the office mm -hmm. and being there all day, 
Mm-hmm. My time available for working out was minimal. Mm-hmm. And I would come mm-hmm. home and try to do these little seven minute workout things. And mm-hmm. it was just not enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because of the pandemic, you know, we got a whole bunch of like full workout situation going on in the garage, mm-hmm. which is great because mm-hmm. now I can just do it in there. And exactly. that has helped a yeah. lot. Yeah. All right, listeners. So this has been another episode of Global Citizens. You can catch us with a new episode each and every Tuesday at www.globalcitizenspod.com and wherever you get your podcasts. And those of you who listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or any actually platform, give us a rating. Helps people find us. And if you love this content, let me know. Suggest a guest. We love to hear from you. So until next time, bye for now.